Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In today's episode, Joe Pfeiffer interviews Lee Revis of CloudMed about his views on leadership and culture. Later, Rich Daly talks with Nicole Farrow and Andrew Johnson from Change Healthcare about trends and solutions in prior authorization. But first, let's hear about the healthcare finance implications of current events. We're going beyond the news right now. Hello, this is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us once again on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick look at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. And first up is the November 20th Trump administration announcement of the most favored nation rule for Part B drugs. This will uh, establish payment for the top 50 Medicare Part B drugs by spend. The prices will reflect the lowest per capita GDP adjusted price of any non-US OECD country with a GDP per capita of at least 60% of US GDP. And for providers, the rule also moves to a flat add-on payment of $148 for the administration of Part B drugs. This will, of course, replace a existing 6% surcharge, which has been adjusted by sequestration to 4.3%. So, Chad, what should finance leaders know about the potential effects of this rule on their organizations? Rich, this is, this is one that maybe caught some folks by surprise. The, the administration released this kind of at the, the last possible minute as an interim final rule, so they didn't go through the normal rulemaking process. And so it will be effective for the first of the year. The, the payment cuts are significant. I have actually spoken with a couple of members already who've had a chance to look at the, the financial impact of this. And one of the providers that I spoke with was a 340B site. And for the drugs that were impacted, even with their 340B discount price, the payment rate that Medic care would be providing for these drugs would not cover the cost of these drugs. And certainly one of the concerns that CMS sort of ignores in the rule is that based on Medicare's own analysis, that a lot of the savings over this, about 19% of the savings, would come from the fact that Medicare beneficiaries would not be able to access some of the drugs on this list just because it wouldn't be feasible for financially feasible for hospitals and for physicians to provide them. That's the impact piece of it. I think there is some question as to whether this rule will stand. As I mentioned, CMS sort of short-circuited the rulemaking process. Um, And so there's certainly an opportunity there for a legal challenge potentially either from providers or from the pharmaceutical industry or both to, to question the method. And then also in terms of this model, the administration is using the Innovation Center's authority to test pilot new payment models. However, this is a mandatory national payment model, air quotes model, um, that will compel almost all hospitals and physicians with some limited carve outs to participate. And so that really starts to beget the question is, you know, is this a test pilot of a model that is limited in duration for seven years as it's laid out? Or is this really this administration trying to subvert Congress's authority to actually set payment rates for Part B separately payable drugs, which they have done and called out in, in statute. So I think this is one to bear to watch to see if it will actually, will, will sort of survive legal challenge, because I would anticipate there will be legal challenges to this, this model. And in another development, on November 25th, CMS launched its hospital at home waiver program, 
And that will allow home-based care for patients requiring inpatient care and daily clinician monitoring. CMS provided six health systems with initial waivers and, and is accepting more from other providers. So what do you see as the significance of, of this program, Chad? Yeah, and so CMS has done this under the hospitals without wall waivers that they've released uh, or that they've put forth under COVID. And so really it's an opportunity for hospitals that believe that they need additional capacity to create that capacity by delivering acute care in the home for the 60 selected conditions. And this is literally just waiving two of the conditions of participation around nursing involvement and engagement. And so the, the payment on this would be the full MSDRG payment. CMS on a webinar today, December 1st, was, was very clear to say that, you know, if the patient was initially admitted to the hospital and then was subsequently transferred to the home under the, the hospital at home model, that would be considered an internal transfer, not sort of subject to the transfer DRG policy. And so, you know, it's it's kind of a, a new wrinkle in this. And the waiver will only be available through the public health emergency. I think one of the things to also note is that CMS has two application tracks for this waiver for facilities that are interested. There is one track that is an attestation focused track uh, for hospitals that have experienced delivering acute care at home. And, you know, they basically define that as they you, you've cared for 25 patients in the home setting. There's another sort of track which will require more sort of explanation of what your hospital at home model will be for hospitals that have limited experience delivering acute level care at home. The other thing that CMS was very clear to sort of delineate in the webinar from th this afternoon was that this is not home health care, but this is truly acute level care provided in the home. And so the, the one piece of this that is also worth bearing out is that, you know, we know that CMMI had a hospital at home model in the works. And so one of the comments that was made during the, the webinar today was that, you know, some of the data from this could potentially be used to inform the eventual shape of a CMMI model if one kind of gets all the way through the development process. But for the, for the time being, this is sort of a, a time limited waiver that's attached to the COVID public health emergency. Yeah, seems uh, timely given uh, some capacity issues that have been seen in various places. Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. And then one other thing was actually uh, a related initiative by CMS that would allow ambulatory surgical centers to be temporarily certified as hospitals and to provide inpatient care for longer periods than normally allowed, as long as the appropriate staffing is in place. So why is this program significant? Yeah, and again, I think it, you know, to the the same sort of urgency driver as with the hospital at home model or the hospital at home waiver, I shouldn't call it a model, it's a waiver, is really it's just CMS trying to provide additional flexibility to acute care providers and, you know, non-traditional, I guess, acute care providers now under COVID to create capacity to meet what is anticipated to be, you know, the surges that we're already seeing across the country and anticipated surges in additional markets. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot for the insights, Chad, and, and for keeping us abreast of these uh, fast-moving changes. Also, this will be the last episode beyond the news segment uh, that Chad will participate in, at least as a host, as he's moving on from HFMA. So I want to extend my thanks and my thanks on behalf of our listeners for all the insights that you shared and, and wish you Godspeed, Chad. 
Well, thank you, Rich. I appreciate that. Certainly have have tremendously enjoyed this segment. And certainly if there's an opportunity in the future to come back as a guest, we'd, we'd love to do so. All right. Well, and of course, our listeners can keep up to date with the latest uh, developments related to uh, COVID waivers, etc. by checking out our news site at hfma.org forward slash news. Thanks for listening. Looking for a quick and easy way to fill open positions on your team? Post your open positions through HFMA's Job Bank, the niche recruiting site for healthcare finance professionals like you. List your open positions today at hfma.org slash job bank. Well, I'm thrilled today to have Lee Rivas, who's the Chief Executive Officer of CloudMed. And I'm going to talk about CloudMed momentarily. It's a fascinating organization. Prior to joining CloudMed, Lee served as CEO of all healthcare and public sector businesses across uh, LexisNexis Risk Solutions and Elsevier Division. I don't know if I said that right. He had a couple other roles with LexisNexis Risk Solutions, and then prior to that was an engagement manager at McKinsey. But here's another interesting part, and we're going to talk about this today. Lee began his career as an officer in the U.S. Army. He's a West Point graduate, and he's also got an MBA from Harvard. So a fascinating background, and some of this I'd like to jump into a little bit today. So can you just start out by telling me a little bit about your leadership journey? How did you, how did you get here? The long and short of it is my leadership journey is largely around the context I grew up in. So there's a piece of it that's just how I grew up. Like all of us were shaped by experiences as kids and how you grew up with your parents and siblings and so on. So that's part of it for me. You know, I call it a, a nine-year chapter is this combination of West Point and my service to our country in the U.S. military, which is a whole other chapter that gave me amazing learnings. And then really between McKinsey and a, a large corporation, the last 20 years of professional experience applying some of those lessons learned and honestly unlearning some things, Joe, like just thinking about like mistakes I made and learning from failure was a big thing and just kind of unwinding some things that I was maybe not as good at early in my career that led me to today where I have the most incredible job ever leading an inspired organization that has this great mission, helping hospitals get paid for services they provide. So um, it's been a great journey for me. Well, I tell you, that's so true. And I think if, uh, you know, you and you probably have had it as well. So, I mean, individual moments or even individual words that I spoke at, at points in my career that stick in my head like they happened yesterday that were mistakes. And if you have the humility to be able to learn from those, that's a really powerful learning. So I think you're, you're spot on there. But tell me a little bit about your view on culture and how do you transition that leadership into a high performance culture? Let me just start with a little context. So we are now a 1,400 person organization experiencing rapid growth. We'll hire three to 400 people in the next 12 months. Uh, we're in six different locations. We just made, did a major combination uh, merger with this company, Triage Consulting, which is recognized as a class leader. All of our listeners would know them. And so I put immense responsibility on my own shoulders. Now I spread that around and, and have a great team around me, but I take it upon myself to build a great culture, right? And for me, what that means is we have a great social 
emotionally connected mission and that everyone understands the mission. And so I literally have this written on a piece of paper that is on my refrigerator and I hope other people get connected to it. Now, granted, we just merged with triage, so we might have different words, but at the end of the day, we help healthcare communities get paid for the services they provide. And I feel like that resonates with my people. Um, I can have honest discussions with my customers, many of whom have been your guests. And so to me, everything about culture starts with why. There's a book obviously written about this, Simon Sinek, Start With Why. I take, I've read and reread that book, watch the videos, and I really think about the why. So that to me is super important. And then it's tying the why to our company strategy. And then it's just communicate, communicate, communicate. And this is in particular, I started, I should have started with this way, Joe, but I started June 16th in the middle of the pandemic. Right in the middle of the pandemic. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So I literally did not meet the first person at our company for about 45 days. And that was in a socially distant setting in Atlanta because someone happened to be in Atlanta. We met in an outdoor cafe. Did your interview process, was that all um, virtual? So I happen to know our investment firm very well. For, I've known them for five to seven years beforehand. So that was no issue. I'd already met them many times in person. But where this is relevant, your question is, I had to build a team in COVID times. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, I hired an incredible woman, Christina Burke, uh, chief operating officer that managed all of our operation. And uh, we had never met. We, uh, she's based in Los Angeles. And we did about seven, eight hours over the course of five different quote interviews or really discussions, getting to know each other. And that was my mode of uh, interviewing. And I did that a couple times with a couple of very senior roles. You know, it's interesting. I, um, and this sounds like a different story, but I, I imagine that you had cameras on and, and you see face to face. And, you know, and it reminds me early on in this, there were some people within HFMA and my staff that you know, they were reluctant to turn their cameras on. And, and now I'm starting to hear people say, well, I'm just really sick and tired of Zoom calls. Well, you know, we can't change the environment. And so being able to see people, I think, is really important. It, was that part of that cultural building? Oh, absolutely. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, any smarter than anyone else here on managing through COVID. So I'll tell you what I do, and I'll tell you some of the weaknesses I try to address, the natural intrinsic gaps when you're dealing with video. Um, and lots been written on this, but what you can do is build teams. I believe you can create emotional connection by actually communicating and doing it more than you might otherwise. And by the way, there's one silver lining around communication is, as opposed to this old school dynamic where you felt like you needed to be in a physical location, and then by virtue of being in that location where most companies have multiple locations, you miss everyone else. Mm -hmm. So now you haven't, you've subscaled your communication versus Zoom, Teams, whatever you use, where you're capturing the attention of everyone. Absolutely. And right. so that is a big deal. And then I do think there is value to more frequent communication. And as, as you've heard many people write about, you tend to have even more targeted decision-making because you understand this isn't like a coffee uh, chat around the cooler. You, you've, got, you've got some limited time to make decisions. Um, team build, I'll tell you the tougher things, Joe, is team building is tougher uh, when you're not in person. You can try to build proxies for that around you know, Zoom kind of coffee chats, happy hours, what have you. I do think M&A is harder doing mergers and acquisitions, and to some extent integration, although our team's doing very well on integrating two organizations. And I think innovation and creativity is harder. 
Sure. So when you really think about sitting with a whiteboard and coming up with new ideas, uh, that is harder. I, I am proud of my team for innovating in lots of different ways with the combination of technology and consulting services in the last couple of months, but it's hard. It's harder, right? Yeah. So to me, there's lots of good things you can do. And, and I, like I said, I'm, a, I'm just generally have a very positive outlook on life, but team building, innovation, and M&A, you have to work extra hard on. Well, gosh, Lee, thank you so much for spending your time and your, your history and your thoughts with us today. What a benefit to our members. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. I admire your organization, Joe. I appreciate you having me. How do you benchmark your revenue cycle performance? Many organizations measure success compared to past performance. Others leverage software to benchmark against other facilities that share the same technology. But that only paints part of the picture. What about comparing your performance to your peers? Peers that you define in custom peer groups. MapApp is the online benchmarking tool from HFMA that helps organizations compare their performance against data from more than 600 facilities. Interested in taking the next steps to identify your revenue cycle opportunities? Visit hfma.org forward slash MapApp. Hello, this is Rich Daly, an editor for HFMA, and today I'm joined by two industry experts to talk to us a little bit about the challenges and some solutions around the highly contentious issue of prior authorization. Nicole Farrell is Director of Operations for Change Healthcare, and Andrew Johnson is Vice President Electronic Prior Authorization Solutions, also at Change Healthcare. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Rich. So the first thing I want to check with you all is what trends you're seeing from payers and how they administer prior authorization. So we've actually seen kind of a broad spectrum of changes in the way prior authorization has been traditionally managed. I'll talk a little bit about that and reading the tea leaves, what we think that creates as as an opportunity in the future. And as, as the listeners may have seen or read, Early this year, as, as coronavirus was peaking, we actually saw a large-scale repeal of the administration of prior authorization across uh, medical services, uh, hospitalizations, and pharmacy benefits, um, really just due to the stress that the provider segment was facing, trying to deal with, obviously, the, the surge in acuity of, of patients. And I think that what that allowed in the industry was, was almost taking a step back, and it's going to be a very interesting case study to look at kind of the the spend associated with uh, different clinical services while there was the stay or repeal of prior authorization. And I think it opens the new door to a, a more collaborative discussion. But, you know, generally what we've seen historically over the past few years is an increasing trend line in the application of prior authorization. We're seeing uh, generally an increase in the number of services that require prior authorization. And uh, within a clinical specialty, as well as kind of a, a broader expansion of that. And, you know, rightly so, payers do want to make sure that the appropriate clinical care is being provided for their member population. And it, it's well chronicled that there is regional variation across the country in terms of the amount of medical services that are being applied to different members or patient population. So, you know, in summary, I'd say that prior authorization is is still alive and well as a tool that payers are utilizing to manage the authorization process. 
but there was already an accelerating theme through industry standard groups like CAQH Core, the HL7 Da Vinci Group, and with AHEP as well, where we're starting to see payer and provider consortiums uh, forming to develop really collaborative solutions around how to more effectively ensure that clinical services are being utilized uh, appropriately. So I, I do think that there is a, a longer term opportunity and a, a theme in the marketplace with a more collaborative type of an engagement with payers and providers, which is something that's, that's really exciting. What are the best practices that providers can put in place now to solve the prior authorization problem? Well, I'll, I'll jump in here, Rich. You know, one key practice would really be for providers to ensure that any procedures, um, medication services that are being ordered, that they have sufficient documentation uh, when it comes to medical necessity to support any request that is going over to the payer side. Um, we're really seeing it drill down to that one word and that's documentation. You know, payers are utilizing standardized criterias um, such as Inequal and Milliman Care guidelines to render determinations. And these criterias are very specific in nature. They clearly outline what justifies a specific service and at what level that service should be rendered. So providers becoming familiar with these criterias and payer requirements will absolutely assist in things like reduction of denials based on medical necessity. In a recent study of revenue cycle denials as a whole, data showed that 11.5% of denials issued were attributed to authorization. So when we look at the root cause and get a bit more granular in that aspect, we're finding that there are reasons such as uh, untimely submissions, invalid requests, denial for medical necessity as key causes. The average denial rate, what we've seen is up nearly 2% since 2016, bringing the overall average close to 11% in 2020. So that 11% that we're seeing, it actually represents about 4.1 million denied claims valued at about 15.8 billion in potentially lost revenue. So when we start seeing numbers of that magnitude, there's certainly a need to import some best practices among providers, but also implementation of AI programs, as Andrew mentioned earlier, to aid in the reduction of these denials and prevent lost revenue. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks to our sponsor this week, Change Healthcare. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review. And if you want to chat with our team, please reach out. Our email address is podcast at hfma.org.